Good morning, Redeemer Church. My name is Andrew Woods, and I'm an elder and the associate pastor at Grace Covenant Church in Weatherford, Texas, as you already heard. I bring greetings from the saints at Grace Covenant Church and also broken hearts. This week we have experienced tragedy within our body, seeing our sweet Izzy be taken from us. And during that, we trust in the promises of God. We trust in her testimony, knowing now that she is with Christ. I'm sure some of you are experiencing this tragedy as well. And for that reason, as I begin, I want to remind us of a couple of things this morning before we read the Word of God. First, tragedy is to be expected in this life. Whether you are a Christian or not, this is one of the effects of the fall. Tragedy will happen in this life, and it will break your heart. Secondly, I would ask, what or who will you turn to in tragedy? Will you turn to earthly things that will wither and fade? Or will you turn to the immeasurable, precious, and continuing steadfast love of God. Would you please uh, stand as we read the word of God this morning from Psalm 36. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word of God. Receive it as such. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heaven, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of the arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. The evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Thus completes the reading of the word of God. You may be seated. This morning, as we try to answer those two questions that I brought up, um, I think this psalm helps us in so many ways. It wasn't what I was preparing for you this week, um, as I was going to come here and bring the Word of God to you, but I felt like the Holy Spirit was kind in helping us traverse this together. 
And so what we'll see in this psalm is kind of a reverse of Psalm 1, if you're familiar with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins with um, the blessed man, and then it ends with the wicked. And trying to help us see those two paths of righteousness. And what we'll see in this psalm is actually the reverse. So this psalm will show us the wicked in the beginning, and then it'll show us the path of God in the end. But I am thankful for how it starts because it helps us, it reminds us of our desperate need for the steadfast love of God. Because it begins with the wicked. So what we'll do is we will break up the psalm into two sections. The first one will be the wicked, and that will be verses 1 through 4. And then the second will be the path of God, which will be verses 5 through 12. And so as we jump into the wicked, I want us to just hear how David explains this to us right from the get-go. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Right off the bat, David reminds us with this very pointed insight that sin speaks to the wicked's heart. This is talking about temptation to sin. And what is so easily done here is pointed outside of us. It's pointed to those wicked people out there and not here in our own hearts. And what I think is really interesting is that there is a translation that can happen that would actually say in the Hebrew, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in my heart. So we're reminded from Jeremiah chapter 17 about how our hearts are so wicked. Who can understand our hearts because of the sin that is in them? Even if we have been saved by Christ, we still have the flesh and we do battle with it every day. And so transgression still speaks deep to our heart. This is the conception of sin. The desire for us to do something that is against the law of God. And it speaks to our wicked heart to do it. How descriptive is this verse? Sin or transgression of the law of God speaks to our heart. Maybe you can relate to this as no one else can see it, but you are tempted either by the lust of the eyes or maybe you are tempted by uh, the pride of whatever you are experiencing or whatever you do or whatever your job is. Maybe some conceit, maybe some some jealousy that you have towards other people. Those aren't things that immediately come out, but it speaks deep to your heart. And this is that conception of sin that no one else can see. It is the progression of sin or like the beginning of of a snowball of sin that will continue. So whereas all of us will be tempted to sin, it is those who have no fear of God before their eyes who will gladly continue down the path of sinfulness. Now I'm sure you've heard from this pulpit many of times what the fear of God is, and so I won't go into great detail, but I will remind us that if you have no fear of God before your eyes, that means you have no reverence or respect for God who created all things. You're not afraid of him and what the consequences are for your sin because we act as if there will be no consequence. That's what happens when we choose to sin. We, in that moment, disregard a holy God. 
We disregard the reality of discipline, or if we're not in Christ, we disregard the reality that the wrath of God will come. And so this progression continues, as we read in Psalm 36. This progression continues in how the sinner will flatter himself, lying to himself that he won't be caught. I love the Hebrew here because I think it paints us such a good picture. picture. It means to smooth out. Have you ever done that when you are sinning or when you have sinned and you're trying to convince yourself that it was okay? You kind of smooth that path out. No, 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 just this time. That's okay this time. And, And really other people don't understand. If they understood all the circumstances that I was going through, then they would realize that this too was a smooth path. And it was okay. And that's what we do in the progression of sin. First, it's this temptation that speaks to our heart. And then we allow it to stay there. And it progresses into the fact that we are going to flatter ourselves and say, no, 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 this will be okay. And in fact, we lie to ourselves that this can't be found out. And we won't be condemned by others. Is this psalm starting to feel personal yet? A man who has let his temptation birth into sin and justifies his sin now begins to show us what it looks like for a heart to be ruled by sin. Verse 4 says he plots trouble on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. His actions are now not only secretly sinful, but have now become outright sinful. The snowball continues to roll. The progression of sin continues. Finally, it comes to a point where the wicked person begins to meditate on sin rather than on the words of God. He does not reject evil and chooses the way or the path that is not good the wicked snowball reaches its fever pitch. The temptation has progressed into the path of wickedness. The sinner has given himself over to voluntary slavery of sin. I think a helpful parallel passage for us this morning out of the New Testament would be found in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. So you can flip in your Bibles there if you'd like, but I'm going to to just kind of pull out a few highlights from that. But be a good brain and go and read this afternoon in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, and make sure that I was saying all of the truth here. But here are a couple of the highlights of this sinful progression or this sinful fever pitch uh, or, or this avalanche that starts with our sin. Suppress the truth, verse 18 says. Verse 20 says that they are without excuse. Verse 21 says that they knew God, but did not honor Him as God, and became futile in their thinking, and their hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, dishonorable passions, a debased mind, and finally in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Not only 
Is it becoming the part of our sin or the path of the wicked that we would be so consumed to that voluntary slavery, but now we're evangelizing other people to do it with us? Come, let me tell you this news of sin and follow me. James Hamilton, in his biblical theology of the Psalms, writes it this way. Evil will be rejected by those who look not at what it offers, but at what it costs and at what it takes away. As we see from God's word, sin will always promise you something, but it will never deliver. The wicked are tempted by things that are temporal, with fleeting satisfaction and delight. And God gives his steadfast love, which is eternal and has abundant delight. And so now we move from the first four verses, which is talking about this progression of sin. And now David, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write down this psalm for not only us to to read, but to sing. He makes a huge pivot. So he's talking about the wicked. You know, we can, we can do Hebrew and, and try to decide, is this talking about other people? Is this talking about David? We know David's life. He struggles with sin. He's also a man after God's own heart, but he also gets disciplined multiple times in his life for sin. He experiences not only sin, but suffering. And so now David makes this hard transition from the path of the wicked to the steadfast love of God. He makes a, a hard shift from self-worship and idolatry to something worthy of worship. Yahweh. In these next verses, David is going to describe a few attributes of God within the next five verses. But he, vo- he focuses on the repetition of the steadfast love as the overarching attribute of these next five verses. And friends, so will we. Before we do that, however, I think it's important for us to be reminded of a a hugely important theme in the Psalter, in the Psalms, and that is the steadfast love of God. This word means, uh, in the Hebrew, is pronounced hesed, and what it means is this steadfast, continuing, covenantal love of God. It is a love of God that God has chosen to give to his people. It's not warranted. It's not something that they earned. It is the all-powerful God of the universe condescending down and bringing his love to his people. And that's how we are reminded when we jump into unpacking the steadfast love of God. So we read in verse 5, the steadfast love O Lord, or it says your steadfast love, correction, O Lord. When we read O Lord, you see probably in your translation that it's in all caps. Maybe a head nod so I can make sure you're following me and you're not asleep. Thank you. Okay. You see that O Lord is in all caps. And when you see that the the name of God is in all caps, we understand that that is actually talking about the name Yahweh. This is the covenantal name of God. So it's interesting, as he starts the covenantal love of God, that he would continue to refer back to the covenantal name of God. Your steadfast love, O Lord, 
extends to the heavens. Your your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. And your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. We see, if you're a note taker, we see that the first point that you would take here is that the steadfast love of God is immeasurable. It's immeasurable. David says, and he's using such poetic and beautiful language, it extends to the heavens, to the clouds. It's impregnable, as impregnable as the mountains and the deep oceans. Friends, we cannot even begin to fathom the steadfast love of God. It is, hear me this morning, it is impossible for us to fully understand. Now, I want you to contrast this just for a second. A love of God that David describes literally reaching to God's throne room and as deep as the oceans, which, by the way, the Hebrews were not, or the, the Israeli people, the Israelites, uh, they were not uh, seafaring people. The water was a terrifying place uh, for them. So the deeps, when we, when we understand the deeps, we're, we're understanding the fact that there is much terror uh, and how deep that that goes, and not even understanding where it ends. So we see how deep this is. And I want you to contrast this morning... I want you to contrast this immeasurable love with the cheap lust of sin. I want you to compare this immeasurable love with what sin tries to offer you. Friends, it's incomparable. God is faithful even when we are not. He is faithful to his covenantal love, his commitment to his covenantal people for his covenantal name's sake. God's righteousness enables the right administration of his justice or judgments on his people's behalves stemming from his promise in his covenantal love. Friends, it should not also just turn us away from our temptation to sin, but it should turn us towards him in things like tragedy, like we're experiencing this week. People will turn to all different sorts of things to try to plug the hole in their heart when someone that they love and adore has left them. And God is saying, don't turn to the things that wither and fade like the grass, but turn to me, which is immeasurable in love. God's covenantal, Steadfast, faithful, righteous, just love saves us. Which is why it becomes so precious to us. This is your second point. The steadfast love of God is precious. David moves from the immense to the intimate and personal. The preciousness of God. Now, as a good Baptist preacher, I not only have points, but I have subpoints. So hang in there. You're going to get three subpoints in this one. Um, I didn't give them uh, to your awesome staff here, so you you're going to have to just fly by the seat of your pants here and take good notes. 
But when we come to understand that the steadfast love of God is, is precious, we see that being laid out for us in these verses in a few specific ways. And number one, I want you to see, or number one A, however you want to um, do that in your notes, is refuge. God's steadfast love is precious because it is a refuge. God's steadfast love provides an abundance of steadfast love and refuge for those, now hear the distinction, who believe. It is a refuge for those who have put their faith in Christ. David multiple times throughout the Psalms speak of taking refuge under God's wings. Taking refuge in God's arms, in his fortress, fleeing to him, his refuge and his strength. Christ himself talks about being a a mother hen to Israel and coming to Jerusalem and wanting to take them under his wings as a refuge for them. Friends, refuge is realizing that God is your sanctuary and that he will never leave you or forsake you. That is a promise when we are in tragedy that we cling to. That is a promise when we are being tempted by sin that we cling to. Friends, when your world is falling apart and you feel like you have no refuge, he is your refuge. And the promise of Christ that he will never leave you or forsake you should just bring comfort to your heart. Number two, A, would be Delight. God's steadfast love is precious because it is delightful. God's steadfast love provides an abundance of delight and satisfaction. Where sin always leaves you hollow and wishing for more, God gives a soul-satisfying delight that can never be taken away. Here comes a Hebrew again. This is really fun. I, I just, I am so thankful that I get to study in this way to hopefully encourage you with this. When we see delight being talked about here in Psalm 36, I want you to take note of this. When we look at that word, it's actually the word that we read of in Genesis when we read of the Garden of Eden. It's the same word. So when David here is talking about they feast on the abundance of your house and give and you give them drink from the river of your delights. He's using the same word that is used to describe Eden, the perfect place of delight and satisfaction. And what we see here is when we're looking at that is that the perfect garden of abundance is the type of delight that God can only bring. It, this, this river flowing from Eden comes to David in these words and eventually ends at the cross of Christ. Where sin flatters itself and pretending it can bring you satisfaction, it will never follow through. I don't know if you guys are Lord of the Rings fans, but you have, inde- if you've never seen it, I'm really sorry. And young kids, you can be mad at me later, okay? But there is this thing called a ring, right? And, and there is this creature 
um, who is so obsessed with the ring that he must have it. And what's so interesting is that through the books or through the movies is that you see this person and how he was and what his obsession over this ring turns him into. And he is completely different. He's horrifying. He's no longer the same person anymore. He is so obsessed with having this ring that he just destroys his life. This promise of power in this ring ends up completely being hollow and destroying this man's life. I want you to think of that as sin this morning and what it will do. It will never, it will never follow through on its promise. Only God and his refuge and delight will follow through on his promise. Okay, third sub-point, and we'll be through number two here in a second. God's steadfast love is precious because it brings with it life. It brings life. God does not just bring us delight and satisfaction, but he is the spring of life. Friends, God himself is say. Now, this is just a fancy word, which means that God exists of himself and is not dependent on anything. God was not created. There was never a time in which he did not exist. And from him flows all life. God is the giver of all life, even eternal life. This is the steadfast love of God that he chose us even from before the foundations of the earth. Ephesians 1.5 Also, as you heard, read earlier, Ephesians 2, 1-10 helps us understand this beautiful thing as well. And then this becomes, friend, the light in which we see all other things. In a famous paper that C.S. Lewis was asked to present at the Oxford Socratic Club came one of his most famous quotes. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. In God's light, we see light. Let's take a quick look through Scripture on this idea of God's light. I'm going to read through a few different scriptures here. You are welcome to try to keep up. You might get there faster than me. Good job if you do that. Um, But I'm going to be running through, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But I'm going to be going through Genesis, the Psalms, Isaiah, John, just to name a few. So the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we get the beginning of this light. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning. The first day. We jump to Psalm 19. A creation psalm. Also a psalm that talks about the word of God. And the revelation of God, both in its general sense and its revelatory um, specific sense. But we read in Psalm 19, verses 3 through 6, 
There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Talking about the light of God. We jump to Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And the nation shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your Rising. We now go to John chapter 1. Probably very familiar to a lot of you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Praise be to God. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, there are many other places to go through Scripture to understand light. But what I want you to see is that it is, in fact, by God's light, the light of the world, the Christ, that we understand all things. If it not for the Son, we would allow ourselves to believe the lies of Satan and flatter ourselves that sin is more delightful than God. But the light exposes our sin. And by Christ we are forgiven and realize the cheapness of our sin. Thirdly, we come to the steadfast love of God is continued. We read this in verses 10 through 12 where David now turns into a prayer. And the reason that David turns to a prayer here is because God so many times again and again and again in his life has proven true, has followed through on the promises that he has given David. And so David is able, as he's crying out, as he's either being tempted by sin, and as we see all over the Psalms where he is dealing with much suffering, he is able to cry out to God knowing that the steadfast love of God continues. So it's not only that the covenantal love of God is so precious to us. It's not only that the covenantal love of God is so completely immeasurable and unable for us to understand, but it continues. David prays for the continued love of God for those who know God and his righteousness for the upright of heart. This is an obvious prayer of adoration to the fountain of life and for choosing him as a member of his covenantal love. 
So let not the arrogance, the pride, the flattery of iniquity speak to my heart or David's heart. Nor the evil of the wicked drive him away from the fountain of life. May we not be arrogant or given over to sin so that we turn on to the wicked path. This is a prayer for personal faithfulness amidst God's covenantal faithfulness. And it ends, friends, with a reality, again, that is so pressing for us. And if you are not a believer in Christ, friends, I pray for you this morning that you would hear this. The last verse ends with, There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to rise. There is no second chance. There is no hoping the best because you lived a life that was really good. You did all the right things. You came even to church some Sundays. You grew up in a Christian home. None of that saves you. But it is faith and Christ alone that saves you. Friends, this is a reminder that sin costs us everything. Sin is not about what we gain, but about what we lose. And if you have become a voluntary slave to sin, you are no longer a slave to Christ. You need to repent and put your faith in Him. So as we come to a conclusion this morning, we see that this psalm lays out two distinct paths for us. The way of the wicked and the way of God. This psalm is the reverse of Psalm 1. The wicked way begins with temptation, speaks or lures the heart to an ungodly desire, which when given birth to sin becomes hidden. And then the wicked gives himself over to voluntary slavery, which progresses into the path of the wicked, which leads to destruction from which no one can rise. But God, praise God for the fountain of life that before the foundations of the earth, he has chosen us. And as I think of my sweet sister who is now in Christ, I praise God for that. I praise God for that truth and for that comfort That in this we don't look to earthly things, but that we look to the heavenly things to bring us hope. We look to the heavenly steadfast love of God. The immensity of it, the preciousness of it, and the continuing hope that we have. There is hope if you put your faith in Christ Jesus. Submit to him as your Lord and Savior of your soul and repent of your sins this morning. You can leave the wicked path. You have heard the gospel. Believe it. Repent of your sins and follow Christ. But friends, for those of us who have drank from the fountain of life, and we see by the light of Christ, so that we walk in the path of God, notice this morning, how do we keep ourselves from sin? Even amidst tragedy, 
Not just temptation, but even we can fall into sin in tragedy. One is that we would seek our delight and satisfaction in the immeasurable God. The one whose faithfulness is to the clouds. The one whose righteousness is impregnable. The one whose judgments are inexhaustible. And the one who saved your soul. Oh, that the immensity of God would choke out the hollow, life-draining, soul slavery that is sin. Friends, another way is that you would hate sin this morning. The kids in the crowd said, Mom and Dad told me not to hate anything. And I'm telling you, you need to hate sin. The wicked do not reject sin, but accept it as good. So friends, you are to hate sin. Now now hang with me as we read a really long quote. Uh, but from someone who could do it a whole lot better than me, and that is St. Augustine. He hated sin, and he helps us see it so clearly. If we cannot be free from wickedness, at least let us hate it. When you have begun to hate it, you are unlikely to be tricked into committing a wicked act by any stealthy temptation. Hate sin and iniquity so that you may unite yourself to God who will hate it with you. Already you are at one with God's law in your mind, for in your mind you are a servant of God's law. If in your carnal nature you are still enslaved to the law of sin because of the pleasures of the flesh are still powerful in you, remember that they will be no longer when your fight is over. To be free from the need to fight, to enjoy true and everlasting peace. This is something quite different from fighting and winning, different from fighting and being vanquished, different yet again from declining even to fight and being carried off as a prisoner But there certainly are some people who do not even put up a fight. Like this one who the psalm says, he did not hate wickedness. For how could he have been fighting against something for which he felt no hatred? Such a person is dragged away by wickedness without even resisting. There are others who do begin to fight, but because they rashly rely on their own strength. And God wants to prove to them that it is he who wins the victory if we enlist under his leadership. They are worsted in the battle. They have apparently begun to hold fast to righteousness, but they become proud and consequently are knocked out. People like this fight but are overcome. Who is it who fights and is not overcome? The one who says, I am aware of a different law in my members that opposes the law of my mind. Look at this fighter, Augustine says. He does not presume on his own strength, and that is why he will be the victor. What does the next line say? Who will deliver me from this death-ridden body, wretch that I am? Only the grace of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He relies on the one who has commanded him to fight, and defeats the enemy because he is helped by his commander. I think, friends, in tragedy, we can rely on our own righteousness. We can come tired trying to have a strong face for our family, for our children, for our friends, for our siblings. But it's okay to be weak because we have a commander who's strong. So let me end with this encouragement. Although we will continue to stumble in sin... We must remember the steadfast, covenantal love of God, which will always be faithful to his promises. 
And this is why we can sing with great heavy hearts, even saddened, even with tears in our eyes, we can say something just like the beautiful hymn says, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Let's pray. O God, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, I pray this morning that your people will hear your word as we have sung your word, as we have prayed to you, as we will take the elements soon. God, remind us of your steadfast love. God, bring to bear in our hearts the immeasurable love that you give us freely, the precious love that you give us freely that is full of refuge and delight in life, the precious love, the the immeasurable love, the steadfast love that continues. And in those promises, even amidst tragedy, Father, we can look to those And we can know that our sweet Izzy is with you in heaven. As our hearts are broken and mourn, Father, we pray that Ryan, that Brandon, that Jill, that all the kids, the cousins, Joshua and Abby, that they would cling to this promise. Father, friends and family here in this congregation, that they would cling to the steadfast love of God because anything else they try to cling to will fade like the grass. But it is your word that endures forever. Praise be to God. Father, may your spirit bring us peace, bring us comfort, and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.